Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by the Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Gamble. And I'm Rich Verma. Great to see you, Kurt, as always, and excited to be talking with a very special guest today. Indeed, Rich. We are excited to be joined by our friend Larry Law, the owner of Mewa, a institution here in Washington, D.C., a Chinese restaurant located in the D.C. area. After arriving in the United States from Vietnam in the late 1970s, Larry embarked upon a very inspiring career in the restaurant business, transforming the nature of Chinese cuisine here in the United States and basically the most welcoming, wonderful institution you can imagine. Yeah, and and Kurt, and in his 30-odd years of being in the restaurant business, Larry has served U.S. presidents and their families, foreign diplomats, global celebrities, and everyone at the Asia Group, I would say. We are thrilled to have Larry on Tea Leaves today. And Larry, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you. Thank you. It's an honor to be on your program. No, really, as Kurt was saying, your restaurant is an institution. Everyone knows it. Everyone loves it. But before we get to the restaurant and your secrets of success, we really want to know more about you because you do have this great immigrant story, great American story. And I, I wonder if you can tell us a little bit about your upbringing. Uh, you were born in South Vietnam to Chinese parents. You lived through the war. Tell us a little bit about that and, and then the American part of the story. How and when did you end up here? Yeah, I was born and grew up in uh, Mekong Delta. And then I went to Saigon, the, the former capital of uh, South Vietnam. But uh, born and grew up in the war zone is a, a tough life. We just see dead body and we see explosion and all these things every day. Uh, just probably turn out to be kind of a, a new normal, a new normal for us at that time. And then so we grew up there. And as a Chinese parents, uh, we grew up speaking Chinese and, and, uh, and Vietnamese both to grow up with that. So I was in college in Saigon during the war. And I probably one of the few people in the world that have three time freshmen with three different universities with three different governments. Wow. First is South Vietnam. I was in college. And then before I finished freshman, the wars, you know, uh, the fall of Saigon in 1975. So the school were closed and all the um, students have to do labor work outside of the uh, school and then getting for two years before the government start open up the, uh, the new school again. And then I got back into the school and be freshman the second time as under the, uh, the new government, new regime. And then I left Vietnam after we decided that we rather, at that time, we rather dead than red. That's what we all say. Yeah. You know, you get, get out the communists because it's a different world at that time. And we grew up, because we grew up in the South, we got used to a lot of freedom that we have, but we, we didn't have at the time. So we decided that we'd rather take a big risk to leave Vietnam. So we left by boat in late 70, 1978. And our boat, we have about 292 people on that small boat, about 60 feet long, 20 feet wide. We have two stack people who like sardine that we stayed there. And uh, we were so lucky in the high seas that uh, we survived in the Pacific Ocean. 
that's pretty, pretty tough. And we were so lucky we didn't run into any pirates at the time. Mm. A lot of my friends or relatives that their boats, they got robbed by the pirates during the time. It's very tough. And a lot of people got, got uh, killed and raped and everything like that. So after eight days and uh, nine nights, and we arrived to Kuchin, Sarawak, East Malaysia. Wow. And we're so lucky to be to be there for the refugee camp for 15 months. And uh, after that, we get, during the time we were at the refugee camp, we got interviewed by the U.S. Embassy, and then we got accepted. And then uh, we, dis- we, we settled in, believe it or not, in Tennessee, Irwin, Tennessee. Wow. It's a very small town in East Tennessee. That's the most West conservative and I was the only uh, one that looked different and talked different than the rest. And the people who lived there, they've been uh, there for years. They've been there for generations and generations. They hardly have anybody that, that uh, come in there. So you talk about co- culture shock. That would be one of the few places that you can get culture shock. Where, yeah. but, but I got, I got uh, to know people well. And then people were skeptical at first, but later on they accept me. And um, we have a lot of friends in Irwin, Tennessee. That's my hometown now. I'm very proud of that. <laughs> and we still have some, I lost my accent from East Tennessee, but I still have some uh, Tennessee moonshine. There you go. That's- yeah, and, and Dr. Campbell, and when we reopened the Miwa in, in Cherry Chay for dining, you guys should visit and uh, I can serve you some of my Tennessee moonshine. I would look forward to that. I know Dr. Campbell would too. <laughs> uh, that one can kill all the virus you can talk about. Yeah. There you go. Larry, that's an incredible story. It's a powerful story. A lot of risk, a lot of danger, living through the war, fleeing on the boat, eight days through the ocean, ending up in Malaysia. I'm, I'm wondering how your experiences, Chinese parents living in Vietnam, spending time in Malaysia, you know, how do those shape now what you do today in terms of your your cooking, your menus, your restaurant. I mean, that must have all shaped your, your experience in, in how you present and think about food today. Yeah, well, actually, the truth is that I'm one of the few people that run restaurants for many years in this area, but I'm not a cook. I don't cook, but I know how to eat the food. There you go. So, <laughs> so and we could management. Actually, uh, in 1988, which I was still in Tennessee, uh, one of my uh, brother-in-law that live in D.C., and they said that there's a, I don't know, Dr. Campbell, you've been here long enough, you know, City Lights of China? Of course, yeah. In the 1990s, that was the restaurant for the, uh, during the Clinton administration. That's why we got to know the Clinton pretty well during that time. And the chef from Taiwan, he, he wanted somebody to run the dining room. And my brother-in-law that got to know him, and he have a restaurant in Chinatown. So he introduced me that, hey, I have a brother-in-law, he can do it. So I came up here and I look around, I love the area, I love the Washington. So that was 31 years ago. And um, and I, of course I love politics too. So you cannot pick a better city than Washington DC. And uh, it's fun to be around and uh, they, uh, where you have you know a lot of congressmen, a lot of senators and, and um, the federal government. And so that's where I end up in Sea Lights of China in the 1980s. And uh, it was there for 10 years. And we served a lot of 
people who are the, in the government and especially the Clinton White House, we got to serve them a lot during that time. Larry, can I ask, you know, as Rich indicated, it's a wonderful American story and it's unique. And you can see it when you see you at the restaurant or seeing you in person. You're such an upbeat, optimistic person and you've seen difficult things, but, you know, you continue to think about the way forward in your community. I'm curious, and I I, I don't know if this is a hard question, have you gone back to Vietnam? What's it like to go back? What's it feel like? It must be both emotional and in some level exciting to see all the the dynamism there. How, how does it feel? Yeah, it's a very emotional. First time I went there in 1998 after I saw City Lights of China to somebody else yeah. before I even op- opened Miwa. So there's a, a, a gap there for me to travel. Usually when you're in a restaurant, you don't have time to go that far that long. So I was in the Vietnam first time and it's really changed a lot. Uh, a lot more than when I was there. You know, a lot of more, as long as you don't get into politics, yeah. you could kind of travel around a lot. But when I was there, the, when the war was going on, you can't travel that much anyway. And after the war, anywhere you go from one city to the other, like you go from Washington, D.C. to even to Rockville, or Bethesda, you have across the state, you have to get the permission from the, the government in Vietnam. So by that time, at that time, you were very, very uh, tired of that. But in 1998, when I came back the first time after 20 years, it was really different. And I could see a lot of uh, my friends doing better than, than when we were there. And so it's a lot of change there. And, and uh, then I got to go back in uh, 2014. That's, that's the second time. So there are only two times that I've been back to, to Vietnam after 40, 40 years that uh, we left Vietnam. So that's a pretty emotional. And just like we said, they grew up in Vietnam with the war on. Mentally, we probably tougher than a lot of other people. Like 9-11, people, everybody get out of the city. And I was living in Maryland. I come into the city. I just want to make sure that everything okay when I got to the restaurant and all these things. I didn't feel any different, but a lot of people... So probably the mentality that, because when I was in Vietnam, the greater war zone, especially the Tet offense, I was in Saigon. We were on top of a building, not very high building either, but we can see the helicopter with the rocket on both sides shooting the uh, out from the both sides of the, of the helicopter. You can see the, uh, the the rocket going and you can see the explosion. Look like a, a movie, but it's real war. And we're there, we're watching. It's, it's just kind of, you got to the mentality there that, that, that you don't feel like. So for me, I'm getting to restaurant business is pretty tough. From the beginning, I didn't know anything. Just like even now I don't cook, but we take the risk and we take probably <laughs> more risk than, than other people with curvy. And growing up in this country, I feel like opportunity. If you work hard for that, you can get it. Mm-hmm. And um, so to me, I'm very proud about that, that my daughter, I have two children, a boy and a girl, but the girl is older. I don't know, Dr. Campbell, she used to work for the State Department. Mm-hmm. She used to work for the protocol office. Her boss was Ambassador Marshall. Larry, we interviewed Capricia last week. 
Capricia has a new. Oh, you did? Yeah. And I remember your daughter. Yes, uh, very well. And you can't have a better, more disciplined boss than Capricia. So that's wonderful. Oh, yeah. And actually, she was at Alisa's wedding uh, two years ago at Biwa. And wow. As a refugee, it, it's, I think it's only happened in this country that the, the daughter of a refugee from Vietnam can work for you know, the state department and, and also she's, she's working now for, uh, for the speaker of the house. So she's working for speaker Pelosi. And, and I feel like it's very proud about this country. You know, I proud about my daughter, but I proud more about this country that, that a refugee's daughter can work for the speaker of the house. That's one of the things that I, I love this country so much that, that, you know, the freedom and the, uh, the opportunity that we got to, to be here is, is so wonderful. Anytime I talk about America, I'm very proud oh, until lately. Love so. that story so much. Love that story. Tell us, uh, Larry, about Miwa. How did you go from City Lights to Miwa and, and why? How did, how did that come about? Yeah, I was, the, the City Light was in the basement. Totally basement. The only thing that we can see outside, we look out one window and we can see people walking. Only see see people's feet. We don't see even people's foot. So it's. I mean, I was there for ten years, and then people could not believe that small space in the basement could be successful. We have Supreme Court justice come. We have senator, you know, governor come, and all these things. And in the nineteen ninety, that was the Chinese restaurant in, in, the, in the capital. And, um, but it, the, uh, be, being in basement seven days a week or six and a half days a week, it's pretty tough for that. And, and anytime I go out in the afternoon for errand, I always feel like, look like the sky is, I can reach the sky because it's just so low ceiling there. Right. So I said, well, to myself, I said, I better get out of here before it's, it's too late for, for psychologically. So we persuade the, uh, the partner to move to a new location with, on, the, on, the, on the street level. But then they don't want to move the restaurant. It's, to move the restaurant is very expensive. So I decided to move myself out. I sell my, my uh, share. I thought that I could be out restaurant business. I'm one of the few people that love the restaurant business. And I got back in because I miss the customers. I meet the staff and I meet meeting people. I mean, restaurant is the best place to meet people everywhere, the world. And, and also, so uh, two years later, we found a location on the corner of New Hampshire and then to open that new and uh, because we cannot use the word city life of China because we are Irish so much. Right. So we use Miwa. But restaurant business, Larry, is very, it's a risky business. And oh. a lot of restaurants, a lot risky. of restaurants don't make it. But you've, um, you've managed yeah. to put it together a few times now. What's the... According to the statistic, it's about 80% failed the first year. Wow. Even the restaurant is still there, but you don't, it's maybe new owner, new management, all these things. It's pretty tough, but you have to enjoy it. I mean, you and the rural restaurant, you have not only long hours, but you have to be with people. You have to like people. You have to meet people because you meet hundreds of different people every day. And most of the people are very good. And some of the customers we categorize call high-maintenance customers. No matter what you do, they're not happy, but it's okay. And I told my staff that, you know, that's not a problem. That's a challenge for you. 
how you can make those, you know, high men and customers to be happy. If you can make them happy, everybody else so easy. Yeah, don't feel like a problem. We we all have those we all have those challenges, Larry. We know we know what you're talking yeah. about. But it it can't be just treating the customers well. I assume at, at first and foremost, you got to have a great product, and the food has got to be good, and the service has got to be totally good, agree. and the price has got to be competitive. I mean, there's a lot that you got to get right. Totally agree. The chef that we have at CLI, and that's what the chef, he's from Taiwan. And actually, he's an excellent chef. He uh, styled many uh, different restaurants in D.C. Uh, area, Virginia. But he's, we, we met, he started through my brother-in-law, as I told you. And uh, we mix it like China, and it become the Chinese restaurant there. He, he is excellent chef. Yeah, I always tell the staff in the kitchen, the, the partners, that no matter how good I am in front, if you don't make a decent food, nobody going to come back because right. of Larry. But in the meantime, if you make excellent food, but the people at the front didn't have good service, don't know how to take care of the front, it doesn't work. So in restaurant business, they have both sides. You have to be to be kitchen and the front have to be coordinated very well. You know, when they come, the best one that to tell about food is the customers. If some of them, they say, oh, this one not good, then the chef have to do something right. about it. So that's the best thing to do is to cooperate both sides. It's, it's tough. Some big, big ego chef, celebrity chef, something it's very ha- hard to handle. But you need to work together to make sure that they know that they still need you in front too, not just cooking. But how did you, Larry, I'm curious because it, there are a lot of Chinese restaurants in the area, in the D.C. area, Virginia, Maryland, but you were able to make a name for yourself. I mean, that, how, how did you decide this was going to be different? This was going to be a different kind of restaurant? Just like the price, moderates. You do not, you can make it high end. It's too expensive for people to eat. And you want to make it for most people can eat it. The majority of people can, can eat it. That's the pricing. And, and also keep the quality consistently. Mm-hmm. Uh, consistent cooking is tough. And that is, you don't want to come to Miwa one day and you eat, and then the next time you come, right. it's different. So consistency is very important to keep the restaurant going. And also to take good care of the customer, keep in touch with them. And uh, we're lucky that I we don't have to spend a lot of money on advertising or anything like that. I just do the public relations myself. And I myself go to a lot of events too, to meet different people. You just can't see the direction. You have to bring the red, go out and bring the customer back to you. And hardworking is another another requirement for, for a restaurant because you deal with different uh, staff, you deal with different uh, customers every day. So this, but you have to be enjoying, otherwise, Every day you go in the restaurant business, you feel like, okay, I go meet some different people. It's very interesting. People are so interesting. Yeah. To be, to talk to, and to find out who they are and all these things. That's a great, great attitude and perspective. I, I wonder if we can shift gears a little bit and talk about the current situation, very difficult situation facing restaurants in the pandemic. 
And uh, I know Kurt has spent a lot of time talking to public health professionals and others about this, but we'd be really curious about how you've adapted, how hard it is. Are you doing takeout? What are, where, where do you see things headed either in a few months or, you know, how, how do you even deal with this set of challenges? This is really a probably unprecedented uh, challenge. So we don't know really if anybody can tell that they know what's going on. It's tough to, so we just, we just, uh, when it happened in China, in Wuhan, in, in Wuhan, about in the back in the, in the uh, January, that's when they have the Chinese New Year, the Lunar New Year, that we call that. That's when um, the restaurant business already get affected, not the Chinese restaurant, not, not just now, but back then people feel like, some people feel like if I go to a Chinese restaurant, I might get infected by the, um, this virus. And a lot of kind of anti-Asian at the time, too, going uh, to the Chinese restaurant. And uh, by that time, we are lucky that we don't have that big infect as some other Chinese restaurant around here because um, a lot of party was canceled, a lot of big events, especially around the Lunar New Year, a lot of events going on. So get canceled and all these things. And so even then, these business get affected already. But by the time that, that it's really going hard here in the country, and by March 16, when the governor uh, of Maryland, you know, stay at home order, then we have to shut down the dining room, but we still do uh, carry out and delivery. But at, by the end of March, the number of infected keep growing up so fast in the area and in, in, in the country, in the world. Uh, I really worry. I worry about the safety for the staff, the safety for, for the, So we decide to shut down the whole thing by the end of March. April 1st is the first one that we sent out a, 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 a uh, we said this is, we closed April 1st. It's not April 4th. That's the real thing. So we closed to see what happened. Because by that time, I thought that in the, uh, in, in the middle of March, the, our leaders say that, you know, don't worry, we're going to have testing. If anybody wants to test, we get tests. But then I said, well, we're going to close so we can buy time to give the government more time to, to prepare for. But then after five weeks, it's not really big difference. So, yeah. but we cannot, uh, you know, close for too long because the, the customer keep calling, got a lot of messages, a lot of email. And also staff, they, some of them need to, to, to work. So we decide to reopen uh, early May and for just still sort of carry out delivery. And during this time for the last uh, two months now, even the government uh, already got phase two to open up for dining, but we're not yet because during t- taking phone call for carry out delivery, I also do a survey with the customer. I said, well, would, are you ready to go to eat in the dining room if we open? The majority say still say no. Even with the delivery right now, they still want contact free. We go to your house, live in front of your door, ring the bell, leave. You don't see the driver. I said, wow, if you still feel like that, how can they go to a dining room yeah. of Miwa and be served by the wee staff or the bus boy come to your table to, to get more water for you? Would you see? And how about the people around you that you don't know? 
even six feet away, not a table, if somebody happened to drink water too fast and cough and everybody just got panicked. So all these factors, we can't worry. So we said, well, give a few more, t- uh, few more weeks to see what happened. Because when you close and when you reopen, it's tough because you have a lot of things to do to clean up again. So, so we decide to, to stay food right now just for carry out delivery. And it's still tough because we use only one third of our space and we have to pay rent for the whole, the whole space. And we still negotiate with the, the landlord to see whether they can give us a break on, on the rent because that's pretty tough too. Larry, when you, when you decide to actually reopen, do you think, tell, tell us about what kind of changes in the restaurant. Do you think there will, will you have people six feet apart? Will there be more plexiglass? Will waiters and waitresses be wearing masks? I mean, how do you, how do you respond to the new normal? Yes. First, we have to clean up the whole thing very well, deep clean too, because after closing for three, four months now, and and then the social distancing six feet away. So, like if we have 120 seats before, it probably cut out to less than half of that wow. for sure. And uh, I don't think that we can do plastic guards so at every table because it's tough right. to to do that because that many. We we pretty big sized uh, restaurant, not huge, but it's pretty big. So we don't know. That's it's a big challenge that we don't know what to do with this. This is so new and nobody, nobody even think about it. They already know something. Nobody know anything about all these things. So this is still a, uh, a challenge for us to see how when we open. And if what if we open and then the second wave coming, even we have not finished the first wave yet, but like Dr. Fauci said in your program, we haven't finished the first wave right. yet, but what if the second we come and we have to shut down again. That's pretty. pretty Larry, tough. so you're talking about reducing the capacity in your restaurant by almost 50%. Can you, can you make, can you make up the lost business? Can you make up the lost business through either takeout or online orders? Is there a way to make up for that? It's not unless the landlord would give you a break on the right. rent. Because rent is almost, you know, 15% of your revenue already. And uh, so, and we have to reduce the hours now because of a lot of uh, subway, a lot of public transportation, they close early. So some of the staff that rely on that, they have to leave early. So yeah, the answer to you is that we might not uh, make it long. And, And if we keep on going, a lot of restaurants won't be not surviving that, that long because it's pretty tough right now to, to deal with that. And we have the business of carry out delivery. We're still very busy. But right now we work about three hours less than we used to have. So that is the cut revenue already. So, um, so we don't know what happened. It's really a, a big uh, challenge right now that, that we don't know the next two months what happened. Can I ask, Larry, I mean, we, we promised you at the outset that we wouldn't talk about politics, but we change course so frequently on our podcast. So, you know, you have a quintessential American story, as we've discussed, and it's wonderful. I can imagine over the last couple of months, there are elements of what's transpired that, you know, make it in some respects more uncomfortable. 
how do you see the United States evolving through this period from your perspective? You know, as I said to you, I'm very proud about this country. But for the last few months or maybe last year, we are different, different way we were. We are a laughing stock now. A few, I have friends all over the world. They said, they they said, what's wrong with your country? I said, I don't know. It's really something that big be, you know, I think that used to be when you go out and you oversee in your pocket, you stick out your blue passport, you're very proud that I'm from America. But it's no more. I think it's not that much anymore as far as we're concerned. And and I think that the world is different right now. They look at America and, and look at China. They expand very fast to uh, the Southeast Asia. And uh, a lot of country around that area get affected. And as I said, if we are not there, anything we don't participate, China said, I'm here. If you need help, I can give you. Just like America used to be said, okay, we are at the table. But a lot of things that we withdraw from the world right now, even in, uh, we talk about lately about WHO. And, and uh, if we're not there, then China, they, China now is different than China 30 years ago. 30 years ago, if, if, if we're not there, China can say, me, I'm here. I can take care of that. But now they could do that. So the, the more we withdraw from the world, the, I think the less important of our role in the world as a superpower. And I don't know how long we're going to be in that status to me. True. I mean, I love this country and I, I want this country prosper and I want this country to be, you know, as good as it used to be. But it's, I think I feel like it's different. Larry, those are powerful words. And I think words that really have to inspire us to try to do better and to try to achieve some of those goals and aspirations that have animated us for generations. Larry, thank you so much again for taking the time to join us today. This has been extraordinarily interesting, really heartfelt, and frankly, quite motivating and exciting. I, I, you know, I feel like getting into the kitchen myself, but uh, appreciate the words of entrepreneurial businessmen, and we wish you well going forward. Yeah, Larry, thank you. Thank you. And uh, we hope that uh, one day we open up, you both come, and uh, we can start, continue the conversation that we have today That's with right. the moonshine. Yeah. We, we right. will definitely do that. And, and really, Larry, thank you for all that you've done, for all that your family has done to make incredible contributions to the country and and such a great story and a, and a set of risks that you've taken. So thank you. And it's, it's great to hear that story. Thank you to our listeners as well. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. I'd also like to mention that you can access the full video of this recorded conversation with Larry online on our website at theasiagroup.com. You can also download the podcast wherever you get your podcasts. So stay safe and healthy and we'll see you next time. Thank you, Larry. Thank you. Thank you. All the best. Thank you guys. Bye-bye.